Okay. On the current issues and the Constitution show, Professor Wilson will encourage you to stay informed and read the U.S. Constitution. The show is intended to shine a light on current issues that impact your daily life. Professor Wilson has twice received the American History Teacher of the Year Award in the state of West Virginia and is the recipient of many honors. He served in the armed forces and is currently a college professor. He is a true patriot who believes the understanding of the Constitution is key to our future and our future freedoms rest with informed youth. Please join us live where you can ask questions or listen on your time. Just follow the show feed to receive the latest shows delivered right to you. Don't miss any of these informative episodes. Are you ready? Take out a copy of the U.S. Constitution, a notepad, and let's get ready to learn. Well, welcome to all of you listening today. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and I'm the moderator of Current Issues in the Constitution. And today with me on the line is Professor Wilson, who, as always, has amazing things to teach, and I'm sure today will be no different. So welcome to the class. Thank you, Felice. Amazing? I don't know, but <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I was riveted uh, last uh, week. I may have edited it. I think I did edit, edit it out of the final uh, cut version of the of the show. Uh, I urged Woody uh, to, I said, oh, we have about uh, 30 minutes left in the broadcast, and we really didn't. It was over. But as I told him later, I, I, to me, I'm, I'm so mesmerized by what he's talking about that um, and I'm taking notes. And then later I checked to see what my, my kids' notes look like, and we kind of compare notes. And um, so I'm so focused on that that I forget to look at the time and do some of the back-end things I need to be doing. So um, it, it time goes really quickly when we're studying about this type of thing. So what are you, um, what are you talking about today? Uh, I thought I would begin with um, a look at the uh, welfare program, uh, historically okay. and modern-day effects. A new study has come out uh, recently um, that presents a lot of uh, statistical data that uh, that more or less describes the program. Um, I know that um, everybody out there is following current events, and you know, especially if you're following current news uh, on um, uh, Fox News, then you're getting the same news that I'm getting. So I thought I would save that to last and uh, take the first 25 or 30 minutes to take a look at the welfare program as one of our entitlement programs in okay. terms of how it's affecting poverty in America and in terms of how it's affecting the national debt and our tax rates and all of those kinds of things. Okay. And something interesting I learned, and I'll just throw out this as a, as a question um, right now, and that is that uh, those that are in that poverty line, um, that some of the states allow their children uh, to be tested without approval of the parents. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. And I, yes. I thought that was horrific when I, I heard that. Someone um, recently from, from Minnesota it is. actually um, told me. As a matter of fact, Felice, this is uh, – uh, this this initiative is a part of the Agenda 21 program that the UN is pushing. Like I said, it's wow. already here, 
And one of the things that they intend to do is take control of our children. And that is just one of the many initiatives that they are pushing. Okay, and then we will um, be talking about the Agenda 21 in in a few weeks. So, all right, Woody, I will sit back and uh, listen in, and I'll be back in a a few minutes. Uh, We'll have a commercial break, and then we'll go to uh, current events. Thank you, Felice, and hello, everyone. Uh, Let's begin with a a look at the history of uh, public welfare um, in America. And before we begin, I would like to say that my heart goes out to the poor. Um, It's a terrible thing, and I was uh, thinking about it uh, this week as I prepared this class. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I was home uh, one day, and I'm not sure why. I know I wasn't skipping school. I did that once and got two whippings for it, so I never did that again. But I was standing on the front porch of my house. I might have been waiting for somebody. I don't know why, but I saw this man walking down the street on the other side of the street. And uh, he was very, very poor and um, very needy. He looked like he was in bad condition. And I just watched him walk down the street. And I remember thinking what a terrible thing poverty is and how I was confident that America is working on poverty, that uh, that we take care of the poor. And and we did. Um, and I, I've, I've been thinking this week, where did I get that deep instinct and that uh, deep concern about people who live in poverty? And I can't think of anything worse uh, than living in poverty. Maybe behind bars would be worse, but living in poverty is such a horrible thing. And I started thinking about uh, the church. I went to church three times a week. Uh, my parents were very, very good people. I remember once when uh, it was a Christmas and I was a young lad, uh, seven, eight years old, and dad came in. We'd opened our presents and said, okay, I want everybody to take one present. We're going over to Northside. That was the poor district. And we're going to give a toy and a ham uh, to poor families. So pick out one toy that you would like to give. And we all did so eagerly. Uh, we were not upset that we were going to lose one of our Christmas presents or anything like that. So we loaded up in his truck, and this was a Lions Club thing. There were several other trucks there too, uh, delivering food and presents uh, to families that simply couldn't afford it. And maybe uh, that experience had a deep impact on my heart. And I remember reading about the Savior and Christ ministering to the poor. And I remember uh, learning in a Sunday school class that Christ said there will be poor always pathetically struggling and that it is our job to take care of the poor. I believed that then and I believe that now. So don't let what I'm about to get into make you think that I do not have a deep concern for people who live in poverty. It's a terrible thing. But we do have an entitlement mentality in America, an entitlement culture, and that consists of, we're going to talk about one of them, that consists of four things, Social Security, Medicare, public welfare, and Medicaid. Those four things are the entitlement programs, and collectively they comprise almost 70% of the federal budget, 70% of our taxes 
are going into these programs. Now, keep in mind, now all my life and anybody that's a, a working person, you pay Social Security taxes and you pay Medicare taxes, and when you retire, uh, you have earned those programs. Neither one is a very good program. Uh, Social Security, if you lived on Social Security, you would live in poverty and you probably have food stamps and free housing and all those things. Um, most of us have a retirement plan uh, in place in addition to that. So Medicare, um, not a real good uh, health care program, uh, but it takes care of basics. We paid for that also. Now, the people who are getting welfare and Medicaid, they didn't pay for that. The people that paid the Social Security and Medicare taxes are also paying taxes that go into uh, the public welfare and the Medicaid program. Now, I'm not going to talk about Medicaid today. I'm just going to talk about public welfare. Now, in the 1920s, um, there was no federal welfare program. Some states had welfare programs, but largely, in those days, family families were strong, and families took care of their own. And there was the Catholic Church and other churches and private um, organizations funded uh, by people. I, I don't know if you uh, know this or not, but uh, John D. Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, uh, um, the Steel King, Andrew Carnegie, donated billions of dollars uh, to poverty and other charitable programs. And between all of these, we kind of took care of the poor. There was always a place for them to sleep. There was always a bowl of soup uh, for them to eat. There was, also, there was always somebody that cared for them. Then the stock market crashed in 1929. The Great Depression set in, and all of a sudden, tens of millions were out of work. Well, the states and the Catholic Church and the other uh, churches and charities were just overwhelmed by the total numbers. So everybody breathed a sigh of relief when Roosevelt announced the New Deal, and uh, we, the federal government began to step in with relief programs of various types, uh, like make-work jobs or uh, food, uh, surplus foods that they would get, and finally, Social Security and public relief. Uh, so these programs began to take care of the poor. And um, unfortunately, and I say that because they don't work, uh, these programs have expanded and expanded and expanded from the Great Depression is over, but those programs still exist. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, just very generally, in terms of warfare, liberals, uh, Democrats support it. They support welfare, including long-term welfare, what they call cradle to grave. You're born into welfare, you die on welfare. Welfare to them is a safety net, uh, and if you lose your job or uh, catastrophic injury and you can no longer work or something like that, then welfare is a safety net. And you are going to live in poverty if you're living on welfare, but you're not going to starve to death and you're not going to freeze to death in the winter. They all, liberals also say that welfare is necessary to bring fairness to American economic life. And by what they mean by fairness, I I think it's probably uh, pretty much what Obama is saying, transfer of wealth thing, uh, fundamentally change America. 
uh, fairness, social justice means that people who earn money should give up large portions of it to take care of those who don't. So that to them would be fairness. And lastly, liberals say, essentially summing it up, that it's a device for protecting the poor. Conservatives disagree. Uh, conservatives support short-term welfare uh, to support your family until you can get that next job or job opportunity or educational opportunity. Conservatives oppose long-term cradle-to-grave welfare. Conservatives believe that opportunities ought to be provided to make it possible for those in need to become self-reliant. You've probably heard the expression, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach the man to fish, he can feed himself for the rest of his life. So conservatives would support programs that help kids from poor families get into skills training, um, technical training, learn how to operate a bulldozer, um, other types of things that are, that are necessary, um, would help them get into college if they're good students, uh, educational programs of various types, two-year programs, developing those skills, things like nursing, for example. Uh, conservatives will support federal monies to do that. And in that, they're probably wrong because the Tenth Amendment reserves this power to the states. I'll, get, I'll come back to that. Conservatives say that, uh, that it's more, and compassion is the word, it's more compassionate, more effective to encourage people to, come, to become self-reliant rather than forcing them to remain dependent on the government for all of their provisions in life. That, and, and basically, when I was um, preparing this, I, I thought of an FDR, federal, uh, excuse me, Franklin D. Roosevelt quote that, that I came across when I was teaching public schools a long time ago. It was one of those things, and you've probably experienced this, it was so powerful and profound, I memorized it when I saw it. So I wrote it down, and he said, and this is in 1938 or 1939, uh, shortly before World War II, which will essentially end the Great Depression as America has to go back to work. He says this. Now, remember, they called it relief back in those days. We call it welfare. They called it relief. He says, to dole out relief in this way is to administer a narcotic, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. To administer a narcotic, a drug, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. And he went on to say that when the Great Depression was over, he said, we shall cancel these programs. And he fully intended to do so. He was able to cancel a few of them as World War II made, made those kinds of things the government was doing rather superfluous. But he died, and he's you know, completely occupied with World War II. He dies before the war is over with. His vice president, Harry Truman, was a senator from Missouri who grew up on a poor farm, by the way, who wrote, whose committee wrote a lot of that New Deal legislation. So instead of canceling it, as FDR promised, he expanded it. He and his Congress expanded it. And by this time, 
And I don't know if even Roosevelt could have done it. But because the time you get to the end of World War II, 1945, 1946, the government of the United States is a New Deal government. This had been going on for over 12 years. And all these new agencies, 40 agencies created by the New Deal, are staffed with people who are very, very devoted to the New Deal, including Harry Truman, the next president. And as a result of that act of fate, it continued. Well, Roosevelt was right. And one little statistic tells us this. 82% of all the adults in America, all the Americans who are living on welfare, 82% were children in welfare homes. So the narcotic that was administered was administered to whole families. And when you grow up in that kind of welfare poverty, that's what you learn. That is your environment, and we learn from our environment. And I have read quite a bit over the years about what it's like to grow up in poverty, about what it's like to grow up as a child in these horrible ghettos in American cities. And I can tell you this, when you grow up in those conditions, usually a single parent, drugs and alcohol and drug gangs everywhere, you don't have much of a chance of getting into successful, mainstream, earn-it way of life. Very difficult to overcome um, all of those horrible things that happen to you as a child growing up in poverty. So, looking at I'm looking at a chart here that shows the growth of welfare from 1950, and Truman is still president, to 2010. Now, it begins in 1950, legacy of the New Deal programs, the relief program. Uh, the chart shows that about $15 billion uh, was allocated in 1950 uh, for public welfare. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson announced his war on poverty, which I supported, by the way. Um, I was young and dumb at that time. Well, I think a lot of us were. We had never really tried this before, but he said, we're going to end poverty in our time. And I thought, hooray, hooray, I jumped for joy. Let's do it. Let's end poverty. So the war on poverty uh, created housing and urban development, uh, Head Start, several other programs um, that uh, benefit the poor, and it grew rapidly until 1980. Um, it's up to $400 billion. A Reagan administration uh, induced Congress to cut welfare, stop its growth, and it leveled off for a while. But when Carter takes over, it begins to grow again. By 1996, we have, we have welfare reform uh, where Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton cooperated with Republicans who controlled Congress uh, to require, you know, to put a five-year limit on it and to basically require people who drew welfare to do community work. Well, Obama ended all that. Now, at that point, it was at about $600 billion. Remember, it starts at $50 billion in 1950. In 2000, by the time that Obama has been president, cancellations, we've got a sharp increase, and it appears to be increasing exponentially. And now in 2010, it stands at $910 billion, 
closing in on a trillion. And in the last three years, I have no doubt that it has, well, I'm, I absolutely know that it has increased uh, even more, and it will very soon cross the $1 trillion a year threshold. Now, remember, this is not Medicaid, and this is not Social Security, and this is not Medicare. This is simply public welfare. So that's where we're going. Now, a few weeks ago, um, Liberals and Democrats supported or celebrated, I think it was a very sedate celebration, the war on poverty, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, uh, which obviously we lost that war, and they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of that program. And the Heritage Foundation did a study on the war on poverty and found this. Today we have 12.8 million Americans on welfare. That's more than Americans who are working full-time. All right, so it's basically the future. We have 47 million Americans on food stamps, and many of these are working, low-paying jobs, but 47 million on food stamps. Let me tell you a story about a surfer um, out in California, uh, one of the beaches up and down the coast. And he consented to be interviewed uh, by a Fox News reporter, and he was very quite quite open about it. He was drawing welfare and uh, food stamps, and he got part-time jobs, and uh, he had plenty of money, didn't need much money. Um, there was a mention of drugs and alcohol. He was basically a beach bum, uh, you know, strapping young man, uh, looked like he's perfectly capable of pulling his own weight in the workforce, but he chose not to. And he would be one of uh, many. He would be one of many that um, enjoy the perks of entitlement and live the easy life. There are many of those. I could tell you more stories, but we don't have time. The Heritage Foundation study concluded that the war on poverty has not only has it failed, it has done harm to the nation. 8.13, 8.13, uh, 8. let's say 8.1% uh, of the Americans were on welfare at the time that the war on poverty began, 8.1%. Today, it's 15.7%. It has almost doubled because we have a relatively significant expansion in the welfare population uh, these folks have large families, and they are the this 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 type of family is growing much faster than let's say working families. So we have seen a doubling. So the poverty rate was 8.1 when we declared war on poverty. It's obvious that we have lost the war when it has jumped to almost 16% of the population, and that will grow. It will be 20%. It will be 25%, and on. Meanwhile, the federal debt is getting out of control, and the leading contributor to the federal debt is this kind of entitlement spending. Over the last 50 years, $421 trillion, $421 trillion, an astronomical, almost unthinkable number, has been spent in the welfare program. This is $421 trillion dollars 
that did not do medical research, that did not do scientific research, that did not support the arts and sciences as Congress is required to do by Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. This, this is uh, money that was not spent on military development or any of the other things that benefit all of the American people. This is money that really was wasted in a sense. Oh, yeah, okay, it kept people from starving and it kept them alive in the winter. Um, and it did give kids a chance in something like Head Start uh, programs, but um, it didn't solve the problem. problem. Poverty almost doubled in that same time period. So are we wasting our money? Are we, are conservatives right? Should we be putting our efforts? Should we be putting a percentage of that money into helping people to become self-reliant? And the other thing you need is a robust and growing free market economy, which this administration has pretty much squashed as we move deeper into socialism. A robust, growing economy offers job opportunities for anybody that wants it. A lot of the people that are on uh, food stamps and welfare today are people that really would like to work but can't find a job because we've got an unemployment rate up around 11%, which is incredible. And I say once again, this is the worst economic downturn in all of history, with the exception of the Great Depression. So we are doing something badly wrong. Going on with the heritage research, the Fed, federal government spent $916 billion on 80 different welfare programs in 2012. Now, in 1938, there was one program. Today, there are 80, and they keep growing. About 100 million Americans received aid from at least one of those programs. Now you're getting up to about a third of the American people who are getting some kind of aid from one or more of 80 welfare programs. So that is expanding, expanding, expanding. Welfare recipients today make up a solid core of the Democratic Party. And I hate to be sound cynical, but sometimes I think Democrats want to maintain this culture of poverty because it gets them seats in Congress, state legislatures, and other places where they can exercise power and live comfortably. Obama consistently promises more benefits, uses that income inequality thing, social justice. Remember those two words, social justice. This is a, a cover phrase that comes out of Agenda 21, and it basically means something like socialist-communist um, equality where everybody has the same amount of money. Uh, Obama also uses class warfare, agency advertising, which I had never seen until this presidential administration where agencies actually go on television, create ads, uh, inviting people to sign up for health care, to sign up for food stamps and take advantage of other programs that the federal government is offering. And, of course, people would do that, so these agencies go to Congress and say, hey, we need more money um, because of increasing enrollments and those kinds of things. So we are seeing, not only are we seeing a steady expansion, but we are seeing people promoting 
that expansion. They want more of it. In 1963, and that was just slightly before the announcement of the war on poverty, just 6% of American babies were born out of wedlock. Uh, people got married and stayed married. The divorce rate at that time was about 6% in America. 6% of American babies were born out of wedlock in 1963, and now that's 41%. And that includes 72% of African-American babies. The sanctity of marriage, the Christian view of marriage. By the way, uh, the divorce rate amongst um, uh, families where Parents are married, they have their children, they go to church regularly. The divorce rate has remained at 6%. And it's up around 60% um, altogether. So I might say to atheists, uh, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. So 41% out of wedlock across America. And that you know that's a huge change from 1963 when it was 6%. Single parent homes are basically dominating now, four times more likely to live four times more likely to live in poverty. Children of single parents are four times more likely to end up in prison. Children of single parents are 50% more likely to end up in poverty as adults. 48% of single-parent homes live in poverty compared to 11% of two-parent homes. 71% high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of drug abusers come from single-parent homes. Boys raised in single-parent homes are twice as likely to become gang members. So the root of crime, poverty, and despair is, in fact, the collapse of the traditional family. Now, like I said, American married couples with children that attend church regularly, divorce rate is 6%. So again, I say to you atheists, be careful what you wish for. You've got it. The breakdown of the American family and the attendant percentages that we just took a look at. 80, and as I said earlier, 82% of adults now, now on welfare grew up in welfare homes. So can democratic politicians continue to say the economic system is at fault. They say the economic system is fault. So what we need is socialism. We need more government, they're saying. And they are exactly wrong. They are dead wrong. I know this as sure as I know anything. The free market works. Christian compassion works. Christian values work. Christian values keep families together. I remember there was a time when my mom and dad had a serious problem. People with that problem today are likely to go for divorce. My parents decided to stay home. They were good Christians. They decided to stay together and raise their children, and they did. And I thank God that they did. So while democratic 
politicians are saying the economic system is at fault, and again, they are dead wrong. I don't care if they're the president or the uh, majority leader of the Senate. They are simply wrong. They believe that they do not believe that it's self-defeating behavior promoted by the welfare system continuously and perniciously for one decade after another with that you know it those people who have been consumed by the narcotic who have become dependent whose spirits have been destroyed that is part of the cause. So income redistribution is a Democratic Party solution. And the end of that is socialism. I hear people saying we're sliding into socialism. You know, studying uh, things uh, very carefully over the uh, last several months and, uh, and even years, I think we're already there. And we could reverse it. But we are, if we're not there, we are right on the cusp of sliding into that horrible system. What it boils down to basically an overall, and this is known, and very few people disagree except the liberals and the Democrats, governments are inefficient. They, government is incompetent to deal with the social welfare problems that we have in America today. Government cannot do it. Government has made it worse. So first of all, why don't we go back to the Tenth Amendment why don't we demand of government, return these programs, phase them back, five-year period, I don't care. Turn them back to the states and let the people of the states decide what to do about poverty in their states, in their cities, in their towns, in their communities. Trust me, we will do the right thing. And we will do it personally, hands-on, and we will succeed where you failed. That needs to be done, and America is approaching a crisis. The national debt is the bellwether of the impending crisis, and when that crisis comes, Americans will have to decide, okay, we can do one of two things. We can bow down to the government and beg them for assistance, or we can demand a return to the basics that made America a great nation with opportunity for all. So it will come to that. I was amused recently when um, I heard um, President Obama talk about promise zones. He was talking about using federal money to go into ghetto areas and put out grants to help people start their own businesses and create jobs and turn the ghettos uh, into something re resembling where you and I live. And I say I was amused because George Herbert Walker Bush, as soon as he was elected back in 1989, made an announcement. He had not been president very long, and he started talking about free enterprise zones where the federal government would use monies to go into the ghettos, uh, grant monies and Federal assistants, even uh, Corps of Engineers, uh, would go in and help build businesses. They would give discounts to uh, factories and other businesses that would move into the ghettos. They would work with the local police um, in the transition period, and they would start providing jobs to all these poor kids that are 
that are growing up in in drug neighborhoods and um a lot of you know these kids growing up in drug neighborhoods they're very bright kids they're as intelligent as you and I but give them the opportunity let them see with opportunity let them see that they can stand on their own two feet and they can actually make money and provide for themselves and for their families offer them opportunities so George Herbert Walker Bush in 1989 offered exactly the same thing I think Obama's people must have read about it and they changed the name to Promise Zones well when Bush announced it the media and the liberals and Democrats went nuts, making fun of him, criticizing it, uh, trashing it, demonizing it, smearing it, and uh, President Bush quietly backed off. President Bush was right, and I don't know about President Obama. He is a liberal. He is a socialist. I do not trust him. It, it just seems to me like he wants Congress to allocate more money for the welfare program and continue to get that support and those votes. George Herbert Walker Bush, I trust him. But um, the free enterprise zones or promise zones, whatever you want to call them, doesn't that make more sense? Isn't that what we're saying? Uh, make people self-reliant, help them to become self-reliant. I help them to escape the chains of poverty and of welfare dependence. I think a vast majority of them would respond favorably. So in a nutshell, um, that is the welfare system in America, its history, what it has done, what it has failed to do, and what some possible solutions are. We don't have to have poverty. In fact, it's a cruel and horrible thing to do to people, what we are doing in our current welfare programs. It needs to change. Okay, moving away from welfare. Yes. Hey, let's jump in right now and uh, have a commercial break. I don't see any questions. I do see some comments uh, that I will – oh, there is a question – um, I would love to hear the but comments. I, yeah, um, I'll, the comments, um, we'll, we'll take it right after the commercial, okay, Woody? And, and okay. I'll come back and I'll read you those. All right, hold on. Great. What happens when you learn about the fabulous facts of American history, add notable presidential events, and a good measure of the U.S. Constitution? Well, you get a history class that is informative and has no rival. See 64 hours of video taught by AP-level instructor and award-winning professor of American history, Robert Woodrow Wilson, were recorded with a live audience. Now available on demand on your time, you can view this class in the comfort of your own home. This video course comes with instruction, handouts, and the tools you need for a high school-level course that can be enjoyed by students of all ages. Especially designed for the homeschool audience and published and produced by Media Angels, a company you have learned to trust with the goal of excellence in education. Need more information? Sure. Go to MediaAngels.com or go to AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com and order your set today. Your kids will thank you. And welcome back. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and this is another uh, issue of the current issues in the Constitution. And uh, today we've been talking about uh, welfare, the history, um, 
and possible solutions from Professor Wilson. That has been fascinating. And uh, just some of the comments, Woody, I wanted to share with you before we took the commercial break um, in the chat room um, from people who have witnessed others on food stamps. And I know this is not the norm, but um, one of the comments was some of those on food stamps have huge families and buy steaks for their dogs. I think that would be horrible. Uh, but, uh, and another yeah. said, um, you know, that she sees part of the problem is companies uh, sending their production overseas instead of having it made in the USA. And, um, you know, the, it's just so difficult, um, you know, because of all the things we have in place to get the labor as cheap as in foreign countries. And, um, could I come in? I mean, on I that? know that. Sure. Um, basically, um, uh, what were once American companies have been more or less forced out of America. Um, they, it's basically difficult to make a profit uh, because of very high taxes, stringent government regulations. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, remember we talked about the carbon tax and the uh, and the um, other thing, the emissions permits that they have to pay for. They're basically trying to put coal companies out of business, um, and also, of course, uh, labor unions and the high cost of labor in America. Um, they Many companies just right here in my hometown, we had a, a business a few years back called Challenger Electric, and it provided 85 jobs, and the union went on strike uh, for higher pay, and they were getting a decent salary. And uh, the company told them, hey, look, uh, we can't, don't have the money. We don't have the profit margin. We cannot afford And they, they proved it. I mean, I read this stuff in the newspaper. But the union mm -hmm. stubbornly held on and refused to compromise. Challenger Electric shut down, moved to Texas. Then they moved to Mexico. And they're down there today wow. making, uh, putting together electrical things. And 85 people in, in my hometown lost their jobs. So you put all those things together, uh, government policy has made it very difficult uh, for uh, private enterprise to flourish in America. So the ones that can and have the money pack up and leave, the others shut down and go out of business. So, yes, uh, businesses are leaving America and taking the jobs with them. Uh, you can blame the government. And you can oppose a government that imposes high taxes, oppressive regulation, allows the EPA to do whatever it wants to do, and supports the union movement. That's what you can do as a voter. Wow. All right. So let me um, look here and... and uh, and uh, go through some of the questions, if that's okay, before you get into current issues. Okay. I mean, current events. Um, there's a question here. It says, we learned that Jan Brewer of Arizona vetoed a bill that would have protected businesses who did not want to serve certain people um, if it was contrary to their religious beliefs. How come this is not already protected under our First Amendment? There's um, in interpretations of... of uh, the 14th Amendment uh, that provide to all Americans equal protection of the law, uh, life, liberty, and property, and states cannot take that away. Um, 
and, and if a government also if a government uh, steps in and requires or passes a law that requires a particular behavior, then they're essentially violating the First Amendment in doing so. Um, it's, it's, this is a, a very very difficult thing, and it could, it could conceivably be argued and decided either way. Uh, but a lot of this has to do with the Constitution, but an awful lot of it has to do uh, with the people with, with out here in society, uh, what we think and what we believe, and so on and so forth. And it just really gets convoluted. And thank you for asking the question. This is one of the things I was going to talk about. Um, it, the, the bill that was passed would allow business owners that have – strong and deep religious beliefs to deny service um, to people that are of the same-sex persuasion, and they could deny service to anybody else, uh, somebody, for example, that believes in abortion or somebody that's a liberal. And I don't think we want to go there as a society. Uh, very difficult to say. Uh, it doesn't, But it allows them against when they're like let's say a same sex couple walks into a shop and and they're usually setting this up and they're asked to leave and so they go out and file suit then the business owner um it allows any business owner church or person to cite the law as a defense in any action that's brought against them claiming discrimination so this bill was passed and then prominent republicans in Arizona that supported it began to ask the governor to veto it, and she announced this morning that she would veto it. And, of course, this, uh, like any other event that goes against the liberal grain, has created a sensation throughout America. And it's in the national chatter. Uh, I know intelligence officials tell us that uh, of impending terrorist attacks because they hear an increase in chatter um, in the lines out there. Well, this causes an increase in chatter uh, throughout America, Facebook, Twitter, Fox News, NBC, uh, magazines, newspapers, um, everybody's yelling and shouting about it. Freedom of religion, uh, we do have. But freedom of religion doesn't mean that in a public venue that we can impose our religious beliefs on other people. And remember back in the 50s when in the times of segregation, and this is really a sense of uh, a type of segregation, uh, when blacks were not allowed to sit in particular restaurants and they did anyway, breaking the law of civil disobedience, and they finally um, prevailed, and that kind of um, discrimination was banned, so you've got another problem here, a constitutional problem, besides the First Amendment. And again, that goes back to the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the law. But again, it, uh, it can be interpreted and argued either way, I think, very effectively. Thank you for bringing that up, by the way. Yeah, very good, very good. Okay, um, another is um, we read 1984 in English, the study and the monitors for the press and news that was proposed by the Obama administration sounds a lot like Newspeak. 
what is the constitutional basis for the FCC when the First Amendment provides for free speech and freedom of press? Even if the FCC is constitutional, is a little bit more, uh, doesn't it only apply to the airwaves? If so, how could it be constitutional to require monitors in the press rooms or on cable networks? Doesn't this oppress people? Uh, thank you very much. And here's another thing I was going to talk about. I love it when you guys do that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the current events uh, section should just be responding to to people who probably uh, know as much or more about it than I do. Well, the FCC program was basically a decision or initiative that wanted to research how new newsrooms decisions are made by sending monitors, government monitors, into newsrooms. Yes, 1984. Um, and this basically, they were looking for essentially what they said. They said they want to look at the process by which stories are selected. And they're looking for critical information needs in what may have called been called perceived station bias. So it sounds to me like the FCC is going after Fox News. Now, I've heard liberals, and I've even heard the President of the United States complaining, castigating, criticizing Fox News for the last five or six years. So this perceived station bias, if you're biased for the president and for the liberal cause, then you're okay. But if you're biased against, I have even heard liberals say out loud before the 2008 election that talk radio ought to be banned as unconstitutional. Because talk radio is 90% Republican conservative. People don't want to listen to liberal stuff. Americans are largely conservative and don't even know it. But they don't want to listen to that stuff. So they were trying to shut down radio stations. They wanted the FCC to do that. So this this looks like these people never give up. They never give up. They've been at it since the early 1800s, and they have not given up. I don't believe that they ever will. They're called secularists. They're called atheists. They're called communists. They're called socialists, and they have an agenda, and um, they are succeeding. It doesn't mean they're going to win. It's just that they're ahead in the ballgame right now. So the FCC started getting pushback not just from conservative, but also from some moderately liberal uh, stations, newspapers, magazines, and they backed off. They discontinued this initiative because of the pushback that they were getting. But this shows you what they're capable of. This shows you what they're willing to do. These people don't care about our civil liberties. They don't care about freedom of the press. They don't care about the Constitution. And that has been obvious for a few years now. And they were willing to do this. But again, if we scream and yell and make enough noise, they will frequently back off. Not always, but frequently. And the Federal Communications uh, Commission does, has been given the authority by Congress to control the airwaves, whether it's radio, television, um, print, 
anything that's communications, newspapers, magazines, the FCC has control. Well, now it has regulatory authority, put it that way, not control. But they're trying okay. to establish control by this kind of thing. All right, now somebody okay. will bring up another subject that I was going to talk about. <laughs> we'll talk about that. that you were going to, you're going to cover. Um, my kids had the same uh, question about um, the uh, governor of Arizona, so that was covered as well. Okay, so um, do go ahead, and if there are any questions, I'll, I'll bring them up. Or um, we're almost out of time, Woody. Did you want to just add a few things? Of um, yeah, like a couple of things, real quick. Keep sure. keep an eye on the Ukraine. I noticed that um, I had to laugh. Um, John Kerry. Um, uh, well, okay, uh, things are bad in the, in the Ukraine. You've got about half the people that are pro-Russian and half the people that are pro-Western, that is democracy, uh, freedom, independence. And uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, put the military on high alert uh, on the border of the Ukraine. And uh, John Kerry comes out and warns Putin not to interfere in the domestic sovereignty of the Ukrainian people and all that kind of stuff. And then Chuck Hagel, Secretary of Defense, a few hours later followed up. And I had to chuckle because um, Putin and his guys probably got a really big laugh out of that. Um, the United States is weak and feckless when it comes to um, uh, foreign problems of this nature. We used to step in with uh, full initiative get people to sit down and work it out, negotiate, compromise. Sometimes we'd send in the military and those kinds of things, and uh, we don't do this anymore. So Kerry and Hegel are out there mincing words and nothing from the president. He has already made it very clear. We have been watching uh, during his entire – well, actually beginning in 2009, we've been watching violence and oppression, horrible things happening started in North Africa, spread to the Middle East. Now it's up into the Ukraine. Pretty soon it will be in the Balkans. Um, it's getting very tense there uh, from what I'm reading. And uh, this is happening because the United States has abdicated its leadership role in the world. I understand uh, Mr. Obama. He's a globalist, and he wants to combine with all the other countries of the world and the United Nations um, uh, doesn't you know United States going it alone and taking responsibility as something liberals want no part of? They want us to join in the mass collective. And let me finish up by saying I um, I have lunch with my wife once a week. She teaches English over at the Caperton Center for Applied Technology. And today I stopped at the Lebanese restaurant, and Rick uh, there is the owner and proprietor. And he was very upset, and I could tell. I said, what's the matter, Rick? He said, I got a, a phone call from somebody. And um, he said, um, he said, um, you know, we talked, and I finally, I said to him, I am a uh, owner, I'm the owner of a Lebanese restaurant. And, he, and the guy said to me, are you a Muslim? And, and, and um, my friend Rick said, uh, yes, I am. And then the guy began to berate him, so he hung up. And he was very, very upset, and, and he said, and, and you know, I, I, think, I think people that, that live in that circumstance uh, follow these things a little more closely, and they probably know more about it because they have been there. He said this thing in Ukraine is, going to, is doing harm 
to all of us. It is stirring people up against each other. It's stirring people up right here in America against me. And he's right. These things don't just occur in the Ukraine, in the Civil War, and thousands that have died and are still dying in Syria and other places. These, these things don't just happen within those geographic boundaries. They have global implications. And this thing is spreading, and it's been going on for almost, well, about five years now, and it's getting worse. People in the streets fighting, killing, governments cracking down, killing. It's something that just didn't happen when America asserted its leadership in dealing with these kinds of problems. So that's another thing that um, we need to address. America is a great, free, Christian nation. We have led much of the world to freedom and democracy. We need to be the leader right now. Okay, if anybody thinks that the United Nations can do it, or take a look at their track record. And you'll find out very quickly that they cannot and they will not. And we could get into that in greater detail later. I think we're pretty much out of time. That we are, but again, it was a very great uh, session, and I appreciate your time. We will uh, talk to you next week then, and thanks again for all of you who are joining us. And Thank, uh, thank you, Felice. Um, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Alrighty, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Current Issues in the Constitution. If you'd like to join us live, visit our show page on ultimatehomeschoolradionetwork.com. And for more information about Professor Wilson's classes, visit AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com. See you next week.